morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Rich Lynn. I'm one of the elders here at Jacob's Well. And this morning we are in the last letter in our series, looking at the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Uh, now when I say last, I am referring to this as being the last in our series. I know that uh, chronologically, the letter to the church in Philadelphia is second to last. So if you're the type of person that likes things to be in order, I apologize that we've messed up your good feelings uh, with our scheduling, but that's how it worked out. Um, so uh, if you lived in New Jersey for any extended period of time, uh, you may know that there is there's an invisible line somewhere in the state where uh, as you go south, uh, you tend to, uh, the, the major metropolis that you identify with starts to trend to Philadelphia rather than New York. Uh, so when, when people say, uh, uh, let's go to the city, they're talking about Philadelphia uh, rather than New York. And the, the, the sports teams start to trend more Philadelphia than, than New York. And so no one really knows exactly where that line is. But I will tell you just a little, my Philadelphia story. When uh, we used to live you know, Mil Middlesex County, we moved a little bit further south to Mercer County. And uh, not long after we moved, you know, back you know, a few years ago uh, with Duncan, the Duncan app, you can get like a free coffee the day after the sports, you know, the local sports teams win. And so we had just moved, and I got a notification saying that, you know, the, the Giants or the Jets, they won. And, uh, you know, claim your free coffee. So I went to Dunkin' <laughs> and uh, ordered the, my medium hot coffee. I g presented my phone to the cashier, and he looks at it, he scans it, it didn't work. He looks at it, and he, and he, and he hands it back to me and says, this is not good here. Uh, we're... <laughs> Uh, this, is, this is the Eagles, Eagles area. So I was like, okay, I, got to, I had to pay for my coffee. But uh, anyway, so yeah, that's my Philadelphia story. But um, let's pray and uh, we'll get into the, the scripture for today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Pray that today uh, it would encourage us, it would convict us. And it would help us to look forward to, to what's coming, to what you have in store for your church, for your people. And I pray this, all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So if you've been following with us in our series, uh, so far you may be familiar already with the style and the purpose of revelation, of apocryphal literature. Uh, if uh, it's a book that uses vivid and sometimes outrageous images, uh, and images being illustrations or symbols or icons that are relevant to the readers at the time. Uh, it uses vivid and sometimes outrageous images and counter images, <coughs> meaning illustrations or symbols that are counter to popular and secular beliefs that the readers at the time may be familiar familiar with. And so it uses these images to interpret present realities in light of unseen realities and what is to come. And so the letter today to Philadelphia is not an, an exception to that. Uh, it's full of images, especially referring to uh, the Old Testament scriptures. And so uh, while the you know, book of Re Revelation it starts out, like in the very first verse, it says that the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. Uh, and it says it right in the beginning. But the purpose for doing so is not so that we have some sort of knowledge of the future or a way to predict what's going to happen. As I was studying, I'm going to put up a, a quote here from, from one of the books I thought it was a very good uh, tone to, uh, a quote to set the tone for this letter. Like, why do we need to know? Why, do we, why should we know what is to come? Uh, it says, <clears throat> certainly the hope of God's future is a central, if not the central supposition of John's apocalyptic message to the early church. 
But instead of providing early church believers with a hidden map to future events that lay at least 2,000 years beyond their own day, John's inspired message to the early church is meant to enliven them. In the midst of persecution and chaos, faith that God indeed has the final word in creation uh, to reconcile, uh, sorry, has the final word in creation and will redeem all things and reconcile the creation to himself in his time. So, as we uh, look at this letter, we'll talk about, so a little, a little bit of primer on the ancient city of Philadelphia. So it's known as uh, the city of him who loves his brother. And uh, it was, this, the name the city was named by the king of Pergamon. Uh, his name is Eumenes II. Okay, so he named it after his younger brother, Adalus, because of Adalus's devotion to him. And the name basically is two words combined, two Greek words combined. So it's phileo, meaning strong love and affection between friends, and adelphos, meaning brother. And so, and the reason he... he named the cities because after him is because Adalus was presented with multiple opportunities to take power from his brother, uh, the rightful king, but he refused because of his love and devotion for Eumenes, I guess I said that. Um, and so you also know that our modern day Philadelphia also has a nickname, the city of brotherly love. And uh, the city was founded by William Penn, who decided on the name because he envisioned that the city would embody his ideals. And what were those ideals? Uh, one, well, the main one was he was hoping that the city would be a place where they could, there could be freedom of religion and a place where people could worship freely without being persecuted. And it's somewhat ironic that uh, he picked that name because as we, uh, we'll see in the text today, the church in, this, in the ancient city of Philadelphia experienced the very opposite of that. It is written to a church who is under a lot of trials and a lot of persecution. And specifically, they were under persecution from a much more powerful uh, Jewish community in the city. And so as a result, you'll see that this letter is written with heavy uh, references and symbols to the Old Testament. So, verse 7, we'll start with that. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has a key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Sounds like a riddle. Uh, but like the uh, beginning of the other letters, Jesus starts out by identifying himself. So he gives himself some titles. And here we see three titles that are very actually very significant to the readers. First one, the Holy One, uh, for all three are from the Old Testament. The first one, the Holy, like the Holy One, was a title that appeared in the Old Testament often used as by God himself to identify him, himself to, to the people of Israel, the Holy One. And so in using this title, Jesus is starting out by proclaiming that he is God. The second title, the true one, Jesus identifies himself as the Messiah, the true Messiah that the Old Testament promised. And it's significant that Jesus used this title uh, because uh, the persecution that the church was experiencing in Philadelphia was coming from the Jews in the city, and it stemmed on the very disagreement about who is Jesus, who is Jesus of Nazareth, and the fact that uh, the Christians worship, would worship Jesus as the Messiah would have caused th this rift between them and, and the Jews. And so, and it was causing a lot of this persecution they were experiencing. And so in using these titles for himself, Jesus uh, is validating their faith and their, and their worship. And the third one, it's a bit more cryptic, but it serves the same purpose, is the title of the one who... Uh, who has the key of David. And so what is this, what is this image? What, what does that mean? Uh, so 
we have to, this is a, a reference to an ima- uh, a passage in Isaiah, in Isaiah 22. Uh, for the sake of time, we're not going to read the whole thing. But just to summarize, there's two people mentioned in this, uh, in this passage, Shebna and Eliakim. Right? Shebna was what they called the master of the palace. Okay? Um, he was the head of the royal household. He had the position. Uh, uh, he carried a lot of the authority on behalf of the king and, ha- and it was, had oversight over a lot of royal affairs. And so this guy, Shebna, uh, this, this power that he had got to his head. And so much so that uh, while he was still alive, he started to build, he had people build uh, an elaborate tomb on, on like the level of, of what kings would have. So he was basically elevating himself. It's like, when I die, I'm going to be on the level of, of kings. And so the verse, uh, the passage continue, continues on and says that uh, God was not pleased with this. And he promised to remove him from his seat of power. And in a rather vivid description, God says that he will metaphorically hammer throw him into the wilderness. Like the words literally say he will grab him and whirl him around and around like a hammer thrower and, and just like and chuck him. It's, it's kind of crazy. And in his place, you remove Shebna and, and put Eliakim in his place. And here is the uh, verse from 20 to 23. It says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him, fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. So, you know, Eliakim here is considered a picture of Jesus. It's a prophecy of the coming Messiah and Savior uh, who's given this position of authority with the key to the house of David. And, uh, you know, talking about the door key to the door of salvation and a relationship with God. Uh, today, so today, as we read this, the power and authority of wielding, like having a physical key is a little bit lost. You know, modern technology allows us to open doors or start vehicles with just a card or app or your phone. And you don't even have to be physically present to do it. So uh, to kind of bring this image to something more modern. Uh, in 2011, there's a computer programmer, his name is Stefan Thomas. He was given about 7,000 Bitcoin tokens for his work in, you know, in, in something. He, he was gifted th- that amount, which is at the time amounted to around, I, I don't know, $10,000 or something like that. Uh, so uh, by 2021, the the tokens that he was given was worth the equivalent of about 220 million U.S. dollars. Uh, for the sake of the illustration, we're not going to go into what exactly Bitcoin is. I was talking to my brother Jeff. I don't know if he's here. Jeff, he's like the resident cryptocurrency expert. I don't think he's here. But if you have any questions, ask him. But just for the sake of the illustration, know that so Bitcoin is all digital, 100% digital. It has to be stored on a digital wallet or multiple wallets, and they're saved on something like a computer or a hard drive or something like that. And so in order to access your, your currency, your money, you have to access your, your wallet, your digital wallet, and every wallet is, has a digital key that, uh, that you use to, to access it. And so this is a long string of letters and numbers. It's not like one, two, three, four, five, or, or password. Uh, it's, it's permanently set. You can't change or reset it. There's no forget my password link. There's no one to call if you forget it. So you either have it or you don't have it. And so this guy, Stephen Thomas, he saved his keys on, on a hard drive, a USB drive. And this USB hard drive, he, obviously it's like $200 million. You want it to be secure. So this has a special feature where uh, there's a password on it. 
and he only has, and, and you have 10 tries. If you fail to enter the password correctly 10 times, the contents in it are, are locked out, encrypted and, and destroyed. You lose it forever. And so, uh, unfortunately for Stefan, he does not remember his password. Uh, and as of 2021, he has tried and failed eight times. So he has two left. Uh, he had, I, I tried to look up like whether um, he actually figured it out, but I couldn't find any updates since last year. So, and, and the last thing I, I read was that he had given up. He just said, I've, I've made my peace. I'm not going to try the last two. He, you know, he stayed up enough nights thinking about what the password is. And he's just, he's done. He's done with it. Uh, it's estimated there are about $140 billion worth of Bitcoin stranded in wallets around the world with no way to recover them because its owners have lost or forgotten their keys. So that's the, the type of strength of access and authority. Jesus is trying to show to the church in Philadelphia. And for Jesus to uh, invoke this image about the key of David and the reference to Eliakim and Shebna, he's saying that the scripture was about, well, was about him. You know, he's claiming authority over who is, and, uh, who is and is not saved, who can or cannot have a relationship with God. It's a strong image that is meant to assure the readers that he is, in fact, the true one the Messiah that the Old Testament talks about. So, verse, next verse, 8, 8 and 9. It says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Here again, we see the image of a door being used. And to understand why this is such an important emphasis, we have to know a little bit more about the context of, of the, the situation of the church. Uh, we know that there's a significant and influential Jewish population in the city. And at the time, the, uh, Judaism was a recognized and protected religion within a Roman state. And so they had agreements with the authorities to be able to worship in their synagogues and to be exempt from participating in the, the pagan sacrifices and the worship of, of Caesar and the Roman gods. And we've covered in, in previous letters that this kind of worship, the sacrifices and these rituals were just part of everyday life. And that when the Christians would abstain from them, it would, it would cause them to stick out. It would, it would make them a target. And the result of not partic participating would lead to, lead to negative consequences uh, socially, financially. And uh, so to avoid that, many Jewish Christians would continue to be members of the local synagogues and be protected under the status that Judaism had with Rome. And so over time, the leaders of the synagogues, they caught, you know, caught on to this and basically cut the Christians off, so in effect, shutting the doors of the synagogue to them, and this would result in, you know, upending their life spiritually, upending their life socially in, in many ways, and so they no longer had this protected status. Uh, they were susceptible to the pressures of society around them, and, uh, and they were, in the eyes of the Jewish community, outcasts. Uh, they were not part of the chosen people. They were shut out from having access to worship of God, and they are now vulnerable. And so, in verse 8, Jesus acknowledges that they have little power. And so, and by saying little power, you know, they could mean they were small in number, little power as in having little social influence or, you know, economic resources, or, or possibly all those things. They were, they were, they had a lowly status, and Jesus said, despite that, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I think a, uh, a trap for the church today, the modern-day church in the Western world, which is us included, we can fall into this trap when we read a letter like this and insert ourselves into the part of the persecuted church. Uh, it's not to say that 
us, uh, the church in America, we don't experience challenges uh, in, our, in our faithful following of Jesus. Uh, you know, especially considering that we do live in a society that's becoming more and more secular uh, and against what Jesus teaches in the Bible. And it's also not to say that there aren't Christians here or elsewhere in the world, in the West, who experience persecution for their beliefs and face losing livelihoods or uh, losing relationships because of their faith. But despite, this, despite those challenges, the fact remains that we aren't, we aren't of little power. We're not short on resources. We're not short on uh, political influence or social influence, even though we may be afraid that it is, uh, is dwindling. And it becomes easy for us to believe that the only way that our faith and that Christianity in general can flourish is in a place where there is no persecution. And we believe that a society where the church has power and influence, that's where Jesus is, and that's where his blessings and promises can be found. And if we believe that, if that's our belief, any challenge, uh, any slight to our freedoms, any, any challenge to the privileges that we have to worship God, or any diminishment in power or resources or influence, that should be protected at all costs. And when we do, and in that process, we, we stray from, his, from, from the word. Uh, we, we stray from, from God's word, we, and we live and act in a way that, is, that denies Jesus. Uh, to be clear, uh, we, should, we should always be thankful that, that we can be here, we can worship freely. We should always advocate for those who are being persecuted in the name of Jesus. But we, need, we do need to be careful. Uh, we also, we've seen how the pursuit to obtain power, to preserve power uh, and influence, and what we've seen how when that becomes the ultimate priority, it leads to the destruction of, church, of churches. Uh, it leads to an embrace of a strange kind of uh, Christian nationalism that's not the gospel. Uh, it leads to an abuse or neglect of those who Jesus has called us to help. So I, uh, I typed this up on Google Docs, and, uh, and if this is an indication that Google is reading what we are typing, uh, it, it's this. Uh, an article, uh, as I was writing this, an article popped up on my, on my news feed. Um, it's from Christianity Today. And it's an opinion piece, but it's written uh, as a critique of the way many Christians in the West have a tendency to intertwine uh, the success of Christianity uh, in a certain er uh, intertwine the success of Christianity in the world to religious freedom, to church growth, and to the number and to numbers, how many churches there are, how many Christians there are. And so earlier this year, the Chinese government uh, in China. <laughs> enacted a wide range of uh, restrictions on religious communication on the internet. So they restricted uh, religious communication, teaching, and evangelistic content that uh, was to be posted that can be posted on their internet, and made it only allowable for certain government-approved groups, religious groups, to do so. And so, from where we are, where we're standing, we look at that. We see restrictions like that, and we automatically think that this is, this is the persecution of the church. Like, this shouldn't be. But it is interesting that uh, Christianity in China is flourishing. You know, even after existing so many years under a government that is distinctly anti-religion of any sort. And it's not like flourishing, you know, in, you know it happening all underground, right? Uh, even though that it is. It's, but it's not like an anti-government, like stick it to the man uh, kind of way. You know, Christianity is growing even in government-recognized churches. Uh, and it's working and existing and flourishing within the bounds of these restrictions and regulations. So uh, this article popped up. I just wanted to highlight one, one excerpt from there. I thought it was very uh, thought-provoking. It says, from a theological point of view, the center of Jesus' teaching and the early church's vision is a radical form of discipleship 
in tension with or even confrontation with the world. But this teaching and vision is fundamentally lost in the Christendom paradigm that turns the church into a master in the world and mutes its prophetic voice. Then what we have is a spiritually weak and socially collaborative church. As Christendom collapses in the West, the church again finds itself marginalized, even exiled in society and culture. An increasing number of church leaders are calling the church to recover the lost vision of the early church and return to a mode of witnessing as a faithful minority in a not-so-friendly world. And so this letter to the church in Philadelphia is a reminder to us that Jesus is present in the depths of difficulties and persecution. And the fight isn't, isn't for religious freedom. It's for faithful endurance in Jesus and his word, even when doing so is difficult. It's a reminder that faith and worship uh, of Jesus can only, uh, can not only exist in that kind of difficult environment, but it can flourish. So uh, let's see, verse 9. So verse 9, it's going to level some very harsh accusations uh, here, not of the church, but you see, so it says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So, <laughs> you know, we're pretty sure that there wasn't devil worship going on in the synagogue. Uh, this isn't a verse that is to be used for anti-Semitism. And uh, we covered something similar, uh, the similar verse to the church in Smyrna a few weeks back. It's a vivid image uh, using intense language to portray how wrong it was for the Jews in Philadelphia to be persecuting the church. It was an acknowledgment of the church's suffering. Uh, in Hebrew, the word Satan means adversary or opponent. And it w it's in other instances in the book of Revelation, Satan is called the accuser of the brothers who accuses them day and night before God. Uh, the other accusation here is that those who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. So if you go back to the beginning of this letter, Jesus identifies himself as the true one. And so if the point of contention between the church and the Jews is, uh, you know, is Jesus the true Messiah? Um, you know, it, this is basically saying that, yeah, Jesus, you know, I am the true one. And this whole section is painting a picture of the, um, of the opposition and persecution of the Jews towards the church on the basis that their worship of Jesus is false. So it wasn't, in, from this verse, you can also say that it wasn't just an exclusion from worship or community, but it, it was bordering on, if, if not, you know, an active oppression of the church, uh, an active oppression for the church to turn away from their faith. So it's, it's very possible. We don't know exactly what this looks like. But it's possible that, you know, in addition to shutting the Christians out of the synagogue and out of worship there, they were also reporting them to authorities, which would subject them to more persecution. Uh, it's also possible that because of the vast differences in their view of Jesus as the Messiah, the Jews in the city were using the power and influence that they had to oppress the church spiritually, uh, socially, and economically. Whatever the details are, uh, we get a picture that the Philadelphia church is a group of people who are powerless, they're vulnerable, they were persecuted and had little in terms of resources and, and any kind of recourse. And yet, and yet Jesus says that uh, they were faithful. He says, I know your works. Jesus sees their faithfulness, and despite the opposition, they kept God's word, and they did not deny his name. And so the second half of this verse, uh, it says, I will make them come and bow before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And so this, uh, there's some differences between 
different commentaries what this exactly means. Uh, some believe that this is a reference to uh, the conversion of the Jewish people, uh, that the open door refers to opportunities to evangelize, for, for the church there to evangelize to the Jews and bring them to, to, to know God, to know Jesus. But I think the, the better interpretation of, of this verse is that it's actually more of a statement about the church rather than a statement about the conversion of, of the Jewish people. Uh, there are many verses in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah as we've seen before, uh, that, that prophesy that the Gentiles and other nations, even those that oppress the people of God, will eventually bow at the feet of Israel and of Israel's God. There's a couple examples here. Isaiah 45, 14. It says, Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God beside him. And another example here, Isaiah 60, 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And so this part of the letter seems to be referring to passages in the Old Testament like this, uh, predicting nations would come and bow before Israel, and then, and then flipping it, flipping it on his head. So instead of the, the nations bowing to the Jews, it's the other way around. And so I think in, in this image, in doing this flip, Jesus is saying that the church now has replaced the nation of Israel as the people that God loves. And it's a, a statement that vindicates their faith in him. And so usually by this point in the letter, as we've seen in the other ones, uh, there's some sort of correction, right? some sort of uh, complaint about the church. And, and we don't see one uh, at this point, and, and we won't see it for the rest of this letter. And this is uh, very similar to the church, uh, the letter to the church in Smyrna. There are a lot of parallels. If you jump back uh, a couple letters, you, you can see that the structure of the letter is very similar. Uh, the church in Smyrna was suffering through tribulation and poverty. The church in Philadelphia was suffering persecution and had little power. Both churches were being persecuted in some ways by the Jews of the city. Both letters mention a time of trial, which we'll see shortly, and also an encouragement to endure in their faith, and then promises for life now and promises for uh, believers in the age to come. And so, you know, when, you, when we're reading these letters, sometimes it's, the feeling is that, you know, like it's just written to a church 2,000 years ago. And, you know, it's, you feel a little bit disconnected to it. But, you know, I want to say that from these two letters, we see that we, we see Jesus' heart for the vulnerable and for the poor and oppressed, and the, especially the, those in the church who fall under these categories. And in these letters, Jesus acknowledges what they are going through. He sees and he says he knows, like, I know. And he provides these bold images and words to show that he understands the difficulties of the persecuted church. And it's a reminder. It's a reminder to us that Jesus sees and he knows and he is present with those who are suffering and in difficult situations. Now, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Luke chapter 4. Um, this is when Jesus was in the synagogue, and he stood up to do the scripture reading, like Chris did today. And he opens the scroll, and he reads from Isaiah. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he, had, he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to procre pro ah, sorry, proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll and he sits down. And then he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The mic drop, you know, before there were mics. Scroll drop. But he didn't drop it. That would have been, that would have been bad. Uh, so this is, this has been Jesus' uh, you know, MO since the beginning. You know, shown there, you know, it shows here in the start of his earthly ministry, you know, continues in this letter and, and in the letter to Smyrna. Uh, and it is it's true now in our time, and it will continue until the end of time. So verse 10, so we're getting, second half here, there's, there's a lot of promises. Um, verse 10 says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast, uh, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So here we see another commendation of, of the church in Philadelphia. They kept and followed God's word and endured patiently. And the promise that Jesus gives them for their patient endurance is that he will keep them from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Uh, it should be noted here that the whole world in the New Testament has been used to both refer to like a greater region, like Palestine or, or Asia Minor, while in other parts of Revelation, it is used literally to refer to the whole earth. But, you know, wh whichever way you decide to, to slice that, uh, it's saying that there's gonna be going to be a period of tribulation that the Philadelphians will experience along with uh, the broader population. And some, some uh, will interpret this verse as referencing the rapture, uh, where God will take his followers out of the earth leaving their clothes behind. <laughs> I don't know if you see, uh, that's just a reference to the rapture. Like, we, like we, we leave the earth and everything gets left behind. Uh, but God will take his followers out of the earth before a great tribulation comes around and thus sparing them from suffering some sort of, of worldwide tribulation. I think while, you know, this would have been fantastic for, for the uh, church here to hear, you know, after already enduring difficulties, to be able to look forward and know that, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be removed and spared from any more suffering. Uh, it's not uh, accurate to uh, interpret it that way. Um, the phrase, keep you from the hour of trial, is more in lines with the words of Jesus when he was praying for his followers. This is in John 17, 15. Do we have that? Did I send that? Maybe I forgot. Uh, so John 17, 15, I'll read it. Uh, Jesus is saying, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So there we see the keep them. So this is speaking about not physical removal from trials or tribulations, but a spiritual protection in the midst of them. Um, there's a, a quote about this. I'll read that. I thought it was very good about this verse, the quote says, here Jesus does not envision the physical removal of his followers from the trials of living in a world influenced by the evil one, but instead asks for his father's special protection of them as they go through these difficulties. So also Christ in Revelation 3.10 is promising the Philadelphian church not its removal, but his protection of them as they go through the difficulties. It's not yeah, it's a promise of not removal or sparing of, of trials, but a keeping of, and a spiritual protection of them as they go through it. In verse 11, <clears throat> continues on. It says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So here we have another image. It's the image of the crown. And this, this, uh, this image is not, it's not a crown of, of royalty, 
like that we picture kings and queens wearing. It's actually, uh, the crown is a word describing a wreath. Uh, it's a wreath worn by victorious athletes or generals. So these are crowns that are woven out of plants, uh, branches, flowers, leaves. And we, we do actually still see that in, in some uh, Olympic games. You'll see the, the athletes on the podium, they have, they have that wreath on their head uh, worn by the, uh, the winners. So it's a crown that is earned through hard-fought perseverance. It's earned through endurance and seeing the competition all the way through. And it's uh, in, in enduring, you come out on the other side victorious. And so here, this is a metaphor for a spiritual rewards. It is a metaphor for uh, participating in God's kingdom in the age to come. And it's something that awaits those who, as the verse says, hold fast, they hold on. In verse 12, it says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. So here, there's two images. There's the image of the pillar in God's temple, and then the image of the act of writing or inscribing of, of these names. Now these serve to be another reassurance for, uh, of their salvation and their place in the kingdom of God. So pillars are obviously essential to many structures. They were essential to the structure of the, the temples and buildings at the time. Uh, there's a pillar right there in the middle of the room, uh, and you don't want to remove that pillar or you run the risk of the ceiling falling on us. Uh, pillars were prominent in, in many Greek and Roman structures and especially in temples, and uh, there is, I found a... 3D rendering of Solomon's temple. Do we have that? It's coming up. It's not an actual picture of Solomon's temple. We don't have any of those. Um, but as you can see, there's a lot of pillars, uh, not just in the temple, but in the court. It's just pillars, a lot of them. They're everywhere. And so it's, uh, you know, pillars are essential, and they were supportive. Uh, they could not be removed. Uh, and, and, you know, when we describe someone who is essential or prominent and supportive within the, pill, uh, within the community, what is the, you know, what is the term we use for a person like that? You know, a pillar, a pillar of the community. Um, I, think, I think of our, uh, our brother, Mark Perlis. He was a, he was a pillar of our community. And so, you know, here in this image, uh, you know, Jesus is using another bold illustration uh, to the church uh, with little power. He's, you know, it's, he's saying that despite your position in the world now, you will have a place in God's kingdom for, from where you cannot be removed. You know, this is, a f this is further supported in the next part of the verse. It says, never shall he go out of it. Or, uh, in other words, never shall he leave it. You know, and to further drive this home, Jesus continues uh, with the next promise. He says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. So here it could be, you know, they're referencing a, a, an ancient practice of you know, inscribing and honoring people uh, with uh, by inscribing their names on the pillars of buildings. You know, we see that today, buildings named after uh, people. Um, but you know, I think another way we can, we can look at it is, uh, you know, when, when I read this verse, I was re reminded of a scene from the first uh, Toy Story movie. You know, last time I was up here, I also referenced Pixar. Uh, it's probably because I, uh, we have many kids, and I've been watching them on, on repeat for about a decade. 
but also, you know, I think there are some, there are some e echoes of gospel truths in the movies. Uh, so in one of the first scenes of this movie, we are first introduced to Buzz Lightyear. And at this point, uh, Buzz still does not realize he's a toy. He believes that he is a space ranger. And he's introducing himself to other toys in, the, in Andy's room. And he, and he approaches some toys and he says, uh, say there, lizard and stretchy dog, let me show you something. It looks as though I've been accepted into your culture. Your chief Andy inscribed his name on me. And then he lifts his foot up and shows them the name Andy written in permanent marker under, uh, on the bottom of his boot. I thought it was an interesting uh, uh, line there. It says, it looks as though I've been accepted. Your chief inscribed his name on me. Later on in the movie, we find, that, uh, find Buzz strapped to a rocket by Sid. Sid is the neighbor, neighborhood kid that uh, destroys and uh, tortures toys. And he's about to be launched and exploded. And, he, uh, and at this point, he had come to the real realization that he is, in fact, a toy. And he is not a space ranger like he always believed himself to be. And he's dejected. He's just sitting there strapped to the rocket. He's given up. He's lost his will to continue. And he accepts his fate that he is about to be launched into the sky and exploded. And in this moment of hopelessness and defeat, uh, Woody says to him, whoa, hey, wait a minute. Being a toy is a lot better than being a space ranger. Look over there in that house. In the house is a kid who thinks you are the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger, pal. It's because you're a toy. You are his toy. And then Buzz looks at his foot where he sees the name Andy inscribed. And uh, it's covered in dirt. He wipes it aside. And, and he realizes and he remembers Know, from, from seeing the inscription, from, from Woody's words, he realizes who he, who he is, and more accurately, who he belongs to. And he finds a strength, and he finds a purpose to escape the clutches of Sid and helps rescue the other toys. And so that writing of Andy's name on his foot, under his boot, first served as acceptance. Buzz belonged to Andy. And then it served as a reminder of identity, you know, in a moment where he didn't know who or what he was or, or what he existed for, the inscription on his foot and Woody's words reminded him and it enlivened him. And here uh, Jesus says to the one who holds fast, the one who overcomes, the word is, you know, the, the, the conqueror, to the conqueror, the one who endures and is faithful, he will write on him, first, the name of my God, so God the Father, uh, writing his name on us, is accepting us and identifying himself with us. Second, he, he will write the name of the city of my God. This is where we're going, we're headed. This is where our citizenship ultimately lies. And the third says he will write my own new name. And this is Jesus talking, so this is Jesus' new name. So this one's a little bit like, well, what does this one mean? In Revelation 19.12, in a verse that's part of a, a passage describing Jesus in his return, says, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. This is crowns. This is the actual royal crown, not the, not the wreath that we just talked about. So on, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. This is some, some mystery name, some new name that nobody knows. And he says that he will write that on, on, on the one who conquers, the one who endures. He will write them on us. And so this is uh, a promise. It's a promise that, that you know, for those who endure, who make it to the end, we will identify with him in a future time when he returns. And when he returns, it's not as a baby, but as a a baby in a manger, but as a conquering, victorious king. And it's another strong and reassuring image given to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, and it's a church that was in deep need of this type of encouragement to continue to endure in their faith. And so 
the, uh, the church in Philadelphia did continue to endure. Uh, churches in the city continued to exist for over a thousand years, uh, up through the 14th century. So it made the Philadelphia church the longest lasting church out of any of the seven mentioned in the book of Revelation. Uh, throughout that time, you know, 1,300 years is a long time, uh, it saw, the church saw the ebbs and flows of Christianity, you know, witnessed Christianity becoming commonly accepted and promoted under, uh, under the Byzantine Empire. So there's 100 years of, of basically uh, existing in a Christian world. And it also existed and survived through an invasion and conquest by the Turks. It existed and survived through the rule of various non-Christian uh, countries and states. And so if you look at this church's history, you know, in light of this letter, you see that it's Jesus that endured. You know, and when we, when the church holds fast to his word and we don't deny his name, we endure with him. Uh, regardless of whether the church exists in a place where Christianity is dominant and, or, and in a place of power, or whether it exists in a place where the church has little power. And so we can be encouraged by that. We can uh, let that be an encouragement for us, for the church, to patiently endure in our walk with Jesus. I'm going to uh, call the band up as we transition to a time of communion. <laughs>